Just for the record, it is okay to clap. It's not anything, there's no sin committed when we clap. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> Man, I love, to, um, I love to worship through song. Um, it's near and dear to my heart. Um, it's the first thing I did at Christ Community, strum a guitar and sing a song. And um, I love doing it. And uh, someone said, I don't know where it originated, but someone said very well that uh, songs sometimes, when you sing those words or when you, when you hear those words sung, they soften your heart to the things that you don't realize your heart is hard towards. They get you ready. <laughs> you know, they, they, uh, music seems to have a way of doing that. And so I, I love uh, just singing together with our church family. Hey, this morning uh, we're going to start a new series. I've decided, Philip. Uh, introduce that just a little bit. I want to read our passage, pray for our time in the Word, and then uh, tell a story. Mark 14, the first 11 verses. We've been going through the book of Mark. We've jumped around a little bit as we've uh, navigated the year in our lives, but uh, Mark 14 begins this section of passage, the section of Scripture. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. So while he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you and you can do what is good for them whenever you want. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we, uh, we just want to acknowledge your presence here. We want to thank you for uh, being God with us. And we pray that as we open your word that you would uh, allow the light of, of Jesus Christ to shine through. We pray, God, that truth would be understood. So many things in our world are changing. We ask, God, that you would use uh, your word to proclaim truth to our hearts. Father, um, I, I only wish that I knew the stories of each person here, what you've brought them through, the common grace that you've given to all of us to be in this place. And so, Father, I pray, I pray in this moment that, uh, that there would not be a heart that um, would feel condemned, but, uh, but I pray, God, that, that each of us would find the grace and the freedom to pursue you wherever we are on that journey with you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and all of our strength. That those who are far from you will be able to turn and look upon you maybe for the first time. 
those who are stuck would find a way to take a step forward and that together we would all uh, join you in the mission the mission to make disciples of your son Jesus Christ it's in his name we pray amen all right I have decided. My mom turned 39 this weekend again. She's been turning 39 for a long time now. But uh, we went up to celebrate on Friday night. And recently, whenever I uh, go up to Indiana to celebrate things with my family, all four of us lawyer boys have been making it home. Uh, my grandpa's health is failing. And um, Every time there's a, a chance to get together, it's funny, you know, how death can seem to, <laughs> when it's looming, it brings us together. And it's a very bittersweet time, but um, it's also a very interesting time because all four of us get together, and when all four of us get together, there's a strange thing that happens to me. Um, inevitably, because it's just, we're people, we start sharing about our lives, what's happening, what we're working on in our careers, how things have changed since the last time we've been together, and, and we're guys, competitive, brotherly, proud guys. Um, in recent years, we've gotten too old and unathletic to do anything else, so there's a traveling ping pong you know, trophy, and we, we play ping pong until someone wins and beats the other one. I mean, we just everything we do is a competition. And um, it's interesting because I find myself... Um, this is, like, this, is, this is like hard to admit story, right? I find myself comparing myself and my life to my brothers and their lives. And these silly questions begin to seep into my brain. Did I make the right decisions in life? Did I make the right decisions in life? And it doesn't help that there's a three-hour drive in between that gives me all this unnecessary time to think about life. What, what could have been different if I had made different decisions? What if I had pursued a different career? What if I hadn't moved away? What if I'd never left the farm? There's nothing wrong with not leaving the farm, just in case you're wondering. And it brings me back to this question that I think at the heart of who we are as, as human people, we're all asking, why can't I believe in Jesus and just do what I want? <laughs> if Jesus is good and he's gracious and he's loving and he comes and he sees me and, and, and you know, all these things, like, why can't I just decide, make a decision to believe in Jesus and then do whatever I want? And as I'm processing all this, you know, messy stuff internally and going on this fun internal journey while Caitlin sleeps in the seat beside me on the way home, I have this interesting revelation that I'm jealous of my brothers. And I'm like, God, what is that? Like, these are, like, these are my dudes. These are my boys. Like, we're really close. None of us, like, actually fight or don't get along. We, like, we love each other. And here I am. I'm like, I'm jealous of my brothers. Like, why am I jealous of my brothers? I hate starting a new sermon series <laughs> because I always have to learn again the gospel-centered truths of Scripture. Uh, I learned uh, in leading spiritually that it's not a good thing to like try and teach or preach things that you haven't learned yourself, and so I pray and ask God for that, and then you know you get to do that. So as I wallowed in all of those what ifs, it it hit me, right? God's teaching. We're we're going as a church to talk about having decided to follow Jesus. And here I am questioning my decision to do just that. I would tell everyone, yeah, I've decided to follow Jesus. Let me tell you the story. 
And then I would go on that long questioning of, of, did I do the right thing? Did I make the right decisions? And it's like, I have decided, or have I? Maybe I want to go back on all of that and do life over. As consumers, Americans have come to expect an incredibly like, diverse amount of choices. <laughs> We've got choices everywhere. Every day we are faced with increasing numbers of choices. Which of the thousands of cable channels do you watch? It can be tough, so you create a little list, so you only look at 20, right? And you still got 20 to pick from. How do you do it? Or you just buy Hulu or something else. I don't know. Do you cook for yourself, or do you choose to become a value customer at one of Shelbyville's fine dining establishments? Depending on what you're looking for, <laughs> you might stay home. But then there's more involved decisions like who do we add as a friend on Facebook or follow on Twitter, the way to decisions that we make uh, around our budget and, and how those affect us. There's some sources that, that estimate that an adult makes 35,000 remotely conscious decisions each day. Now, in contrast, a child makes about 3,000. Don't you, don't you want to be a kid again? <laughs> And this number may sound absurd, but this is the one that blew me away. We make 226.7 decisions each day on food, according to researchers at Cornell University, people that are way smarter than me. And as your level of responsibility increases, so do the smorgasbord of choices that you're faced with, right? We all make decisions. We do it, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, like we make decisions. We, uh, you and I have been given a free will and, and all these choices about what to eat, what to wear, what to purchase, what we believe, what jobs and career choices we'll pursue. We have decisions about how we vote, who to spend our time with, who we're going to date or marry. We have decisions about what we're going to say or maybe how we're going to say it, whether or not we'd like to have kids, what we will name our kids. I know we have some people in the church that struggle to name their kids. Bergens. I, don't know, I think they're in the back maybe or maybe not here. I don't know. They've got a long history of not being able to leave the hospital because they can't figure out what they're going to name their kid. I'm a planner. I don't know how they do that. We have decisions to make about who our kids are going to spend time with, what they're going to eat, what they're going to wear, right? And the, the list of decisions starts again. All these choices, they carry these certain consequences. They're good and bad. And this ability to choose, it's, it's incredible, right? It's an exciting power that we have been entrusted with by the Creator God. He created us with that ability to choose, to decide, to commit. And because He gave us that ability, we have an obligation to be good stewards of that. Because these choices compound, right? We see this most evidently in the choices that we make with our spending and the way that they collectively impact the balance sheet. But these accumulated choices all work together over a lifetime to take us to various outcomes. And all of a sudden, there's these individual choices that we think only matter to us, such as what we eat for lunch. They think, we think they only impact us. But what we find is that that's not true. These decisions always interact with others' choices and actions. And, and so these decisions create a ripple effect for our spouses and for our families and our teams and our business units and our organizations, our communities, our states, our nations. All the choices that you make impact everyone on a greater level. It just may take a really long time for you to see the consequences of those decisions. So I have decided. I have decided. Here's the question that we are going to wallow in for the next several weeks. Why does commitment to Christ and the church matter? 
Why does it matter? If we're going to make that decision to follow Jesus, if we're going to make that decision to be committed to, to Christ and the church, what, what's the long-term impact? Like, let's think long-term impact. Why does that matter? And what does that question really mean, right? We've got to break that question down over several weeks before we can make the decision to commit to Christ and the church. And before we can make that decision, most of us have to make a decision about ourselves. It's the question that Lauren got at in her story. Who am I? Who am I and where do I stand? You see, it's kind of like my experience with my brothers. We all naturally compare ourselves to the people who are in our lives and around us. It's not something that we can get away from. And we don't do that uh, on purpose. We do that because we're searching for the answer to the question, who am I? And we end up trying to answer that question by gauging ourselves, comparing ourselves to those around us. So I may ask you the question, who am I? And you say, I've decided who I am. But then when you see someone else, you say, or have I? Or have I? This comparative competition isn't anything new, right? Since Adam and Eve sinned, humans have been trying to evaluate themselves by comparing themselves to others. Think Cain and Abel, right? And we see it again here in this story that we're dealing with today in Mark 14, 1 and 11. We compare instead of commit. Verse 4 says it this way, but some were expressing indignation, some of the disciples, right? They were expressing indignation to, to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. They began to look at their own faith journey and compare it to the, the, the lady, this woman, who I wish had a name because it would be a whole lot easier to write her name in the sermon a lot of times. They just keep calling her the woman. But they begin to compare themselves to her and try to to make um, conclusions about where they stand with Christ. You see, for many of us, when we ask ourselves the question, well, am I committed to Christ in the church? Our instinctive human nature is to begin to look at those around us and ask if we're doing a better job of following Jesus than them. And that is a flawed approach. You see, whenever we begin to compare ourselves to others, it all starts to reveal our sinful motives. It all begins to peel back those layers. In this instance, we see the disciples scolding the woman. Judas, man, apparently it's like a whole other level for him. I love when you can look at the Gospels. There's four Gospels, and they, they tell the same story of Christ, but they give you different vantage points and, and different insights. John 12, 6 shows us this about Judas. It says, he didn't say this, he was talking what he did said to the woman. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. You see, when we begin to compare ourselves to others, that never ends well. It always fleshes out in some kind of envy or jealousy, and, and it really begins to expose who we really are. It begins to bring out this question, what would we trade Jesus for? Judas traded him for a small amount of money. What would we trade him for? And when we give full vent to our comparison, right, when we, when we just say, you know what, forget it. I'm going to compare myself because I can't get away from it, so I'm going to continue to try and define myself that way. It only ends up in guilt, like we see in the life of Judas. Matthew 26, 24, Jesus says this, The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. That's Judas. 
It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Matthew 27, chapter later, verses 3 through 4 says, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was full of remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he said. Well, what's that to us? They said, see to it yourself. Judas made a decision because he didn't like the way that Jesus interacted with this woman to betray him. And that betrayal led to tons and tons and tons of guilt. You see, the decisions that we think are all about us often begin pushing us to something that we never would have thought because we're comparing ourselves to other people. Warren Wearsby said this when talking about Judas. He said, if you're not born again, the day will come when you wish you had never been born at all. If you're not born again, the day will come when you wish you had never been born at all. You know, I don't know where, where you are today. But if you're the one who maybe like Judas is carrying around a load of guilt that's largely created by internal narratives that compare yourself to others, know that you're not alone, right? I'm not going to tell you to stop it because you can't. We're humans. We're sinful. And for those of you who are walking with Jesus and maybe you're stuck in a season of looking at everyone else around you and trying to gauge whether or not your faith is good or your life is good or the things that you can give to your children is good, if you're stuck in that rut, I'm not going to just stand up here and preach to you and say, stop. I'm going to say, I get it. We are sinners. And it is hard. It's human nature, but it is not the nature of God's grace. And that is the story of this passage. You see, this woman, this woman allows us to see God's grace in full action. She believed that Jesus was who he said he was. That he was the Messiah, the one who had come to set them free from their sin and from their guilt and from this comparison trap. And because she recognized that and believed that that was true, she was grateful, really grateful, a year's salary grateful. Right? Like we read 300 denarii and it's like, what does that mean? Let's put it in our terms, right? She was 30,000, 50,000. $80,000, $100,000 grateful. And because we're sinners, we immediately think, am I that grateful? (laughs) Would I do that? I want to compare myself to the woman. Would I be as grateful as this woman was on that day? Man, here's the gospel, right? I I love this. It's like hidden in this little verse. Mark 14.8. Jesus responds when the disciples get mad at her, right? And he's, he tells them to leave her alone. Leave her alone. Leave her alone. She's done, she's done good. And she, he says this in 14.8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. She has done what she could. And what she could is never enough. What you can is never enough. But she has decided to be grateful for the fact that Jesus has died for her and has given her something, is going to do that. And and what I love about this passage is that it shows that Jesus knows the plan. It shows that he knows he's headed to his death and he's committed to it. He's decided. 
Thank goodness for God's grace. And I pray that God's grace will continue to extend to me as I compare myself to others. Because in God's grace, Jesus committed to die without comparing you and I. He committed to die without comparing you and I. He didn't ask himself who would be grateful for his gift of salvation and who wouldn't. He committed to the plan of shedding his own blood to forgive us of our sins. Right? He didn't say, well, I'm going to wait and see who's actually in it for the right reasons. He just died. All of us humans, with an ounce of competitive juice in our bodies, we don't like that. We don't like that because what that means is we, we can't work a little harder. We can't do a little better. We can't get ahead of our brother or sister in Christ. We are all the same. And it's like, oh, I can't deal with that. There's got to be something that I can do. We don't like the thought that there isn't a way for us to get ahead of our fellow man. But thank God for his grace and not comparing us before he committed to us. And the beauty of that is that it doesn't matter what your story is in some sense today. Your story matters. But it doesn't matter how bad your story is. It doesn't matter where you are in the middle of your story. Christ was committed to you. He was committed to you. Quite frankly, if you ask me, that's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair that a guy like Jeffrey Dahmer might be in heaven with me. That's not fair. It's a good thing it's not up to me. <laughs> Jeffrey Dahmer, for those of you who don't know, was a notorious serial killer, pedophile, a cannibal. And a guy by the name of Roy Ratcliffe began to meet with him in prison and share this message of grace with him again and again. Listen, Jesus committed to die without comparing you and I, right? Imagine looking Jeffrey Dahmer in the eye and... and Extending grace to him. It's not about what I've done. It's not about what you have done. It's about the grace and forgiveness in Christ. And again, when I, like, when I look at myself honestly in the mirror and my humanity, I'm like, that is not, it's not fair. It's not fair that Jeffrey Dahmer could do those things and still be in heaven with me. <laughs> I struggle to see how my sins look like the sins of Jeffrey Dahmer in the eyes of Jesus Christ. That's just honesty. Okay? It's not, uh, like, that's not good practice. <laughs> Now, do we know 100% that Jeffrey Dahmer's in heaven? We can't know for certain. Only God knows his heart. But what we do know is that he did decide, he made a decision to commit his life to Jesus and then to follow him in baptism. When that happened, people from Roy's church made this comment, if Jeffrey Dahmer is going to heaven, then I don't want to be there. If Jeffrey Dahmer is in heaven, I don't want to be there. Roy wrote a book about this experience, and he wrote, how can a Christian hold that viewpoint? I don't understand it. Does it come from a misunderstanding of the forgiveness of sin? Is forgiveness limited to those who are not very bad after all? Is there no joy in knowing that a sinner has turned to God? I'm convicted. <laughs> Just to be really honest with you, I'm convicted Perhaps the people from Roy's church share some similar attitudes with the disciples that day. Who in their indignation, right, chastised the woman. Who in their minds were thinking, if this woman can waste a year's wages on anointing Jesus, then I'm not sure that I want any part of this anymore. Right? I'm out. And perhaps we share that same attitude at times too. If being committed to Jesus means reprioritizing my life, then I'm not sure that I really want to be a part of that. 
If being a part of a church means struggling with people who are difficult or draining, then I'm not sure that I want to be a part of that. If being a part of a church means actually attending church, then I'm not sure that I want to. If being committed to Jesus is going to ultimately cost me something, then I'm not sure about this. Right? Maybe we carry some of those same attitudes that we see in the disciples here in this day. In small moments all across our life, little snapshots. Right? It's like caption this photo. We put our smiles on, but if the caption was what our brain was actually thinking, what would it say? What would the snapshot of how I spend my time say? What would the snapshot of how I handle my money say? What would the snapshot of my relationship say? You see, it's not how any of those things compare to my neighbors or to society at large. It's how those things reflect my commitment to Jesus. You and I will never be able to stop comparing ourselves to others. It is not possible. But because of the hope that you and I can find in Jesus, we can understand that our identity is not defined by our comparisons, but rather by Jesus and who he created us to be. I heard it said recently that we confuse the gospel and we get it backwards. We think in our brains that, that God said to Jesus, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, after he had died on the cross and come back to life to save the world, after he had committed to dying for humanity. But instead, it was when Jesus had spent 30 years just living a plain old normal life and died to himself in the waters of baptisms, that God said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. You see, Jesus ministered and served and committed to us from his identity, not for his identity. And we can learn something from that. You see, because you and I are under the tyranny of sin and comparison, we can't break those chains ourselves. We can't go to social media and look at people's pictures and not be jealous. We can't do it. And so what happens is we like to look at Judas and the disciples and compare ourselves to them. Well, I mean, I'm jealous of my brothers, but I would never betray Jesus. Thank goodness. Thank the Lord for his grace. And that's what comparison does. It pushes us to find someone that we believe in our minds is worse than ourselves. And that makes us uncomfortable, right? Because all of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah, I do that. But I want us to consider two other people in this story as well. Not just the woman, she's one, but also Simon. Simon the leper. You see, their identity, these two, wasn't wrapped around what they did, but rather who Jesus said they were. This woman who, I wish I knew her name, she doesn't offer the great gift to Jesus out of obligation or guilt. She offers it out of joy. She has great joy because of the grace that has been given to her already. And notice, too, the host of this anointing, Simon, the leper. There's power in his name and in his title, right? Simon, the leper. This was his identity in society. He was a leper. But what we know is that no one could have been a leper. No one could have had leprosy and been in town or in home or, or hosting people around his table. And so what that tells us is that this man had, had been healed. And, and in all likelihood, he had been healed by Jesus. Jesus had changed his life. He would shown him grace. And so this man is hosting Jesus and his disciples and this woman and maybe several others in his home out of pure joy and celebration over the fact that Jesus had changed his life and restored him to the person that he had created him to be. You see, you... You are made for joy and not for jealousy. 
You are made for joy and not for jealousy. You are changed by grace through faith in Christ, not so that you can enter the race of holiness and try to make yourself a better person, but so that you can enjoy the holiness that is already yours in Christ Jesus. It's not a competition. It's already yours. The race has been won. So if you are made for joy and not for jealousy, what does that mean? And, and, and what does that look like? And, and how does that change the way that you and I live? We're going to notice three things from the Bible about joy and three things about jealousy. And we're going to figure out a next step. Joy, number one. Joy is generous. Joy is generous. 2 Corinthians 8, 2. I love this story in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and they're going through a hard time, but in the middle of their hard time, they had given to the mission anyway. It says, During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. We can be generous because we know the one who gives us all things. You see, if we don't approach life as, I've got to keep doing good things so that God still loves me, then we're freed up to give away whatever it is he calls us to, knowing that we are already secure in heaven. When we are joyful people, we are generous people. Giving financially at Christ Community Church isn't something that we just do for fun. It isn't something that we just do because it makes us feel better or because it's an obligation. It's something that we do because it's a way to express our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It allows us to show others that we are joyful, that we are generous because of all that, not all that he's given to us, but also knowing that we are secure and safe in him, that he will take care of us always. Now, on that note, because we're sinners and we screw up in our finances all the time, it can also be a ball and chain if we don't handle things his way. On your bulletin today, you'll notice that uh, loveshowville.com slash equip. We're starting a, a series of classes in the fall. And if you go to that website, you can actually register for these classes. The finance class is the first one. It's taught by Jason and Melissa Midkiff. You're going to get to hear from them hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Starts on August 12th, okay? And um, 15 spots. We're limiting spots so that we can see what God does in people's lives. And, and we want it to be a transformation experience, not just an information experience, okay? So we want to walk with people as they do this. And if you're like, man, I want to be more generous, but I don't even know where to start, and I've got so much debt that I don't know what to do, please sign up for this class. Maybe you've got a bunch of money, and you're using it on yourself, and you're not being generous. Sign up for this class too, right? 15 spots. Sign up today, loveshadowville.com slash equip. Joy is generous. Number two, joy follows commitment. Joy follows commitment. 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9 says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Here is what the world and Satan will try to tell you. Find the things that make you happy and spend more time on them. Right? Find the things that bring you so-called joy and commit to those things. It doesn't work that way. Commitment follows joy. I said that backwards. Joy follows commitment. Dead gone. So much for that point. 
You see, commitment that follows joy isn't real commitment or real joy. It's addiction that follows lust. Romans 15, 13 confirms this. It says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are always looking for the next thing that makes you happy, you will never be satisfied with Jesus. Look for Jesus, and he will give you joy. Joy is generous. Joy follows commitment. Joy is your strength. Nehemiah 8.10. Another fun story in the Bible, the book of Nehemiah. They've built this wall. They've done this great thing. They've come back. They've restored the city. And when they do that, they read the scriptures to one another. And it's this crazy thing. When we begin to read the scriptures, God begins to call sin out of us, right? Like it makes us, it just, it just does that. It calls us. It convicts us. And that had happened to these people. They were convicted by what they were reading in the scriptures, They felt bad, right? It's like, man, there are some things in my life that are messed up. And I love what the scripture says back to them. It says, then he said to them, go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared. And you're like, what? I feel feel convicted of my sins. Why are you telling me to, to go and eat what is rich and drink what's sweet? He says, since today is holy to our Lord, do not grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. This is, like, this is amazing. It makes it really hard on preachers because it's a whole lot easier to try and make you feel really bad about yourself and then come and just, you know, weep at the feet of Jesus. <laughs> but what he says here is like, look, yes, you should feel convicted. You should recognize your sin. But as soon as you recognize your sin, you should also recognize that Christ is already committed to paying for that sin. It's paid for. It's done. It's forgiven. And we can move forward with joy, right? That's our strength. Our strength isn't I'm walking out of here feeling super convicted about everything. My strength is I got some messed up stuff in my life that I need to work on. But I have so much grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's already forgiven those things. And I know that he already wants something better for me than what I want for myself. That's how joy becomes strength. It helps you to walk when you're not sure what to do next. Now, here's what we tend to do, right? We tend to say, my strength is my 401k. That's what, that's what lets me know that I'm going to be okay. My strength is my assets. I know that I can sell something if I really need. My strength is my education. I know that I'll always be able to get a job because I've got this degree. My strength is maybe my family. I know I can always count on my family. My strength is my muscles, right? That's for the 20-year-old guys that are still sitting in the room. Those go away real fast. That's the first to go. (laughs) What are you looking at as your strength? I told you earlier that my grandpa's health was failing. So Friday, we go to dinner. He's got, like, oxygen that is pumped to him all the time. He's got an inhaler. Like, he can't, he, he physically can't breathe by himself. And somehow he's still walking around. So we sit at the dinner table for a couple of hours. And, I mean, my, my grandpa was like a jolly guy. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe. He's just a happy, joyful guy. And we cut up. We tell stories. All these things are great. And he gets ready to leave. And it's maybe 20 feet to the door and another 20 feet to the car. And he gets to the door. And he gets to the front steps. He's wheezing. 
He says, I got to sit down. And for 10 minutes, he just sat there and wheezed, unable to say anything, just trying to catch his breath to make it to the next 20 steps to the car. And when I reflect on that, right? When I reflect on that, what that tells me is that all those things that I am jealous of, all those things that are perceived strengths, my 401k, my assets, my education, my family, my muscles, man, those things are all going away. They're all going away. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but they are all going away. But because my grandpa knows Jesus Christ, he's able to sit at that table and have joy. He doesn't have a question about what his eternity looks like. He has decided to follow Jesus, and because of that, he has joy, not the other way around. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It outlasts all of those things that you're trying to set up as strengths in your life. You are made for joy and not for jealousy. What do we see in the scriptures about jealousy? Jealousy is always looking for a way around. It's always looking for a shortcut. When Judas realized that he wasn't getting as big of a financial boost or political boost as he thought he was by following Jesus, he looked for a way around Christ. He looked for a way to gain power himself. We do it by looking at what other people have and we see it and we begin to ask ourselves, how can I get it? How can I get that trip? How can I get that house? How can I get that experience? James 3, 14 through 16 says, But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and, don't, and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. You see, when we begin to pursue the things that we think we want, disorder enters our lives. We talk about being chaotic and busy. A lot of times that is there because we're pursuing the things that we want. We're looking for a way around the path that God has called us to. That's what jealousy does to us. And that eventually gives birth to attacking other people. James, just a chapter later, chapter 4, verse 2 says, You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. The disciples attack this woman. And you think, well, maybe I wouldn't do that, but, but I would ask, who will you attack? Maybe you'll attack your kids with something like, you know, life would be a whole lot easier if we didn't have you. And if you don't say it, you think it. <laughs> if you don't think it, praise God, you are holier than me. Not comparing, or am I? Maybe you attack your spouse. Why did you spend money on that? Again, just examples from my life. I don't remember. <laughs> you attack those who have what you want. You don't understand it, so you gossip about them. You spread things that are untrue about them. You attack your parents. Man, if only you provided a better home for me growing up. You see, jealousy is running deep within us. We can't get away from it. Only the grace of God can save us from it. 
Jealousy looks for that shortcut, and on the way to that shortcut, it attacks other people, and eventually it leads to death. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart is life to the body, but jealousy is rottenness to the bones. It will kill you. But the good news is that God, the creator of the universe, made you for joy and not for jealousy. He made you for life and not for death. And even though you do all of those things, and jealousy is running rampant in your life, He committed to die without comparing you and I. He doesn't look at the jealousy that's running in you and say, sorry, I'm holding this one back. He died and gave you grace so that you could walk in newness of life. The band's going to come back. Folks are going to get ready to pray with you and serve communion. The question that I ask myself, the question that maybe we all wrestle with, why can't I believe in Jesus and do what I want? Can I not be committed to Jesus and still live my life in pursuit of the things that I want? It's not that you can't pursue the things that your heart desires. It's that the things that you want will look vastly different if Jesus truly has your heart, if you are truly committed to him. It's been said there was a young man who poured out his heart's devotion on a piece of paper as he wrote a love letter to the girl of his dreams. He said, darling, I would climb the highest mountain, swim the widest stream, cross the burning desert and die at the stake for you. They later turned it into a Christian song. Just kidding. That was a joke. Christian joke. Church joke. At the end of the letter, it says, P.S., I'll see you on Saturday if it doesn't rain. Obviously, if the things he had written were true, rain wouldn't make a difference. And if the things that you say about Jesus are true, then a lot of other things shouldn't make a difference either. But how does our personal decision to follow Christ, to live with joy instead of jealousy, impact those around us? I'm sure the woman that day had no idea that what she was about to do, breaking an expensive jar of perfume over the head of Jesus, anointing him and preparing him for burial, would be told to others for the rest of eternity. She didn't do it so that she would be famous. She did it because she had joy and she was grateful. This gift of alabaster oil that she made, it wasn't that it was just expensive. The word literally means precious. I mean, sure, it was expensive, but it could have been more. Maybe we don't know the rest of the story. This could have been the oil that had been handed down from generation to generation. This could have been the family inheritance. It was worth so much. This could have been a jar that her ancestors had crafted with her hands and and, and the hands of her grandparents and great-grandparents had touched the jar. Whatever the story was, it was precious. It wasn't just that it cost a lot of money. You see, this kind of generous gift of pure nard was an expression of her pure joy. See, that's how it goes. The more committed you are, the more precious the gift you will bring. So the question I leave you with today is, what are you bringing to Jesus? Is what you're bringing to Jesus precious to you? 
Are you threatened by Jesus? Like the religious leaders? Does he pose a threat to your way of life as he did for Judas and others? If so, you aren't bringing anything to Jesus. You're bringing Jesus to his captors. And even still, Jesus committed to dying for you. That's grace. So would you commit to him? Would you bring him something precious? Are you jealous of those whose joy is in Jesus? Maybe you walk around and you're like, man, I wish my relationship with Christ looked like that. Do you wish that you experienced the joy of Christ that, that wells up in generosity? If so, know that joy follows commitment, not the other way around. And the question becomes, would you commit to living for Christ more fully than you ever have before? Maybe today you are finding joy in Jesus. Praise God. I hope that your joy in him wells up in generosity like it never has before, that you would find strength in his joy by giving him even more of your time and your talents and your resources. If the joy of Jesus is your strength today, we want to challenge you to share that. We want to challenge you to share that. A uh, former student of mine <clears throat> uh, recently was riding back in the car with his dad, another believer, probably one of the best youth volunteers I've ever had, and his dad had just finished doing the keto diet. Any ketoites in here? His dad had just finished doing the keto diet, and he said it was about an hour trip. The first half hour, it was just all, keto is awesome. you got to try this keto thing. Yeah, keto, 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 keto. He's like, Dad, you are really excited about this keto diet. Might be a few other people in my life that are excited about keto. I don't <laughs> Seems like there's quite a few. And his son who has headed into ministry, he said, Dad, I'll do the, I like, I'll try keto with you. I will do keto. He was like, I just want to ask you a question. He said, do you realize what could happen if you were as excited about sharing Jesus as you were this keto diet? <laughs> and I loved it because the dad, uh, he, he began to share that story, right? Like the son didn't like go blast like, hey, I got my dad. <laughs> the dad was like cut to the heart and he was like, he started sharing Christ way more faithfully. You see, when, when Christ teaches and shows you that he has given you grace for all of your sins, like, there is no greater joy than to know that all the things you wrestle and struggle with are gone and forgiven, and you can walk in newness of life. There is no greater joy. And so, we want to challenge you to share that joy. And if you don't feel like you have that joy, we want to challenge you to think about your relationship with Christ. Do you know Him? Have you committed to Him? I hope I don't say this flippantly, right? But like, when our lives aren't expressing that we have joy in Jesus Christ, there's a problem. And sometimes the problem is, is we don't know Jesus. We think we know Jesus. I heard Lauren use the term, my fake salvation. I did some things that made me feel like I was saved. So, we're going to wallow in all of that. There is no resolve <laughs> to this sermon, Right? We're going to wallow in that for the next few weeks. Am I committed to Christ and the church? But while we do that, we want to give you an opportunity to share the joy of following Christ. So September 16th is the last Sunday of this sermon series. And um, 
we've begun praying, we're praying with you, uh, that people that don't know Jesus would have an opportunity to come and hear about Jesus and to give their lives to him. And so over on the, the chalkboard today, there's chalk out, and it says, I have decided to share Jesus with. You're like, oh, that makes me uncomfortable. Good. <laughs> Good. Do you have joy in Christ? If you do, it's a small sacrifice to just begin praying for one person, deciding to share the joy of Jesus with them. We've got handouts over there, a few. If we need to make more, we can. It's like a little test to see how many people will take the handouts. Just kidding. But they help walk you through week by week the steps that you can do to, to begin praying for this person, to invite them, what the series looks like, all those things. We want to help you express your joy in Christ by sharing it with someone else. If you've ever done that, you will know that there is no greater joy than to see someone else find joy in Christ. And we want to help you do that. The band's going to come. We're going to respond. And if you don't know the joy in Christ, or maybe you're looking at yourself in the mirror uh, after all of this and you're saying, maybe I'm not committed to Christ. We want to pray with you. We want to just share with you that grace again. We want to help you pray to him and accept that grace that he's given to you. If you have that joy, we want to encourage you to come up, take a piece of the bread and dip it in the juice and remember Christ's death on the cross that forgave you of your sins and gave you that joy. Maybe your joy is welling up in generosity. Each week there's cans in the back that you can use to give. You can go to loveshelvel.com slash give and give online or give through text. All those instructions are there. But more than anything, we want you to know that Jesus committed to die for you. He doesn't care what you did. He didn't compare, where you, he didn't compare you to anybody else. He died because he loves you. Let's pray. Father, to say that you loved us is uh, almost an understatement. <laughs> we don't uh, always grasp how wide and how long, how deep is your love for us. But I pray, God, that you would use your spirit to help us in that today. And I pray that you would uh, give us strength through your joy. Father, for those who don't know you, I pray that you would give them the courage to step out and say, I want to know you. I pray that you would give each of us the courage to express our joy in you. We pray in Jesus' name.